the other aspects of living in Switzerland, which I shared a few months ago in terms of racial profiling, which happens in Switzerland. I hadn't thought much about it. I mean, I've lived in Switzerland for almost four years now. You first move to a different place and something happens and you dismiss it. And then it happens several more times and you realize that, oh wait, this is actually a thing that happens. I mean, racial profiling happens in the U.S. The difference is in the U.S., you all understand that it's wrong. But in Switzerland, it feels like it's the norm, especially coming from the police, which is just weird. Because if the people that are enforcing the law don't see anything wrong with it, then how can it change? Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I have a really, really interesting guest today. Actually, I think I always say something like that because I love all of my guests. I just have these great conversations that we share with you. Who is it today? Who is it on this episode? George Bodeng, who went to Dartmouth for his undergraduate and his master's in engineering and is currently studying for a PhD at ETH Zurich, which is one of the top science universities in the world for PhD education and for technology and for startups as well. He has degrees in computer science and engineering and philosophy, if that's not enough for you. He's worked at Amazon for a short period of time. He's founded an NGO in Ghana a number of years ago, and he's actually the CEO and co-founder of Swayco.ai. AI stands for, of course, artificial intelligence, which is an ed tech AI startup aimed at democratizing science and technology education across Africa using smartphones and artificial intelligence. George has been recognized globally with accolades such as Pioneer in the 2021 MIT Technology Review, where they talked about 30 innovators under 30, and he was one of them. 2021 Africa Prize for Engineering Innovation on the shortlist by the UK's Royal Academy of Engineering, no less. And earlier won the Education Innovation Prize given by the African Union. So he is on a fast track to tremendous success. One of his mentors said about George, quote, he is very ambitious, always looking for opportunities and opening doors for himself. Bowden himself says that his own personal experience with rheumatoid arthritis spurred what he calls his, quote, man on the moon mission to discover how wearable technology and machine learning can help predict flare ups and prevent the disease from worsening. So he's got a lot of deep motivation in applying science, applying artificial intelligence to solving some real problems. And a really good example is his startup, Swayco.ai, and he emerged almost by accident. In 2013, when he was an undergraduate student at Dartmouth College, so he's still quite young, he teamed up with a group of friends to launch a summer innovation boot camp for high school students in their native Ghana. They donated laptops, but of course those laptops eventually broke down and a few years later and wasn't so easy to fix them. And only a quarter of the students had laptops of their own. Buying more would of course overwhelm their budget. Interesting thing is, and this is true across Africa, all the students had smartphones. So Boeing and his colleagues, they redesigned the coding module to fit a five inch screen. And the experience went so well that it hatched a spinoff. And that is this pilot that became Swaycode, an eight week smartphone based course on coding. The course teaches processing, which is a Java-based language, and has now hundreds and hundreds of graduates from over two dozen countries. It's a tremendous effort. I just want to put everything into perspective. Here's someone who is still very young, 
who grew up in Ghana, only lived in Ghana before coming to America and coming to Dartmouth College, of all things. And we do talk about what that was like to show up in America and to show up in a little town in northern New England when you've come from Africa and how he managed to get comfortable and what he learned along the way. And I will ask him, what did you learn? And his answer is a show stopper and one I'm never going to forget. You'll hear that in our conversation. And then he starts to start up, he's involved in NGO, he's getting his PhD. He's doing a lot of different stuff. He is, in a way, a young version of the modern Gen Z slash millennial entrepreneur that creates a lot of opportunities, just like his mentor had said, creates a lot of opportunities for himself, wants to have a big impact. He's not just interested in getting a job or even just making money. He wants to have an impact. He wants to make a difference. And he's been doing that in a variety of different ways. So very personable, very compelling. Very interesting guest on the SIDCast, George Bode. I think you're going to enjoy this. Welcome to the SIDCast. My name is Sid Finkelstein, and I am your host. It's great to be back with another episode with you. And today I'm going to be talking to George Jojo Boding. George, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Good to have you on. Let me just ask you, it's kind of a silly question on my part, but so your name is George Jojo Boding. What's the Jojo? Is there any particular meaning to that, special meaning to that? Yeah. So in Ghana, the day that you're born determines one of the names that you get as in the day of the week. So I was born on Monday. And because I'm a male child born on Monday, the Jojo refers to that. So there are variants of that, Kojo, Jojo, others. So the Jojo comes from the fact that I'm a male child born on Monday. Anyone from Ghana will know that right away. Yes. That's not a bad system. Let's start with your work now. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to say it right. Swaycode, how do you say that? Swaycode.ai? Siakode. Siakode.ai. First of all, what is this? Siam means to learn in one of the Ghanaian languages, fancy or G. So it's like learn to code. So that's where the name comes from. And where did the idea come from? Like what is involved? What do you do with it? It's currently an app that we use to teach people to code, young Africans to code using their smartphones. Mm-hmm. So that's a summary of it, but I can talk about the backstory. If you'd like. Yeah, sure. Let's hear how it came about. Sure. All right. So at Dartmouth, I co-founded a nonprofit called Ancesa Foundation with friends from high school. And the idea of the nonprofit was to teach and mentor young Africans to identify problems in Ghana and then develop a solution to it. It ran as a three-week innovation bootcamp where we teach high school and university students, computer programming, microcontrollers. We mentor them to identify real-world problems in Ghana, develop a solution to it by a three-week period, and then present it on the final day. So we've been doing that since 2013. And I previously received some laptops to run the program. But in 2017, the laptops had broken down. And to run that year's program, we're considering renting laptops to give to the students, but it was just going to be so expensive. So we abandoned that idea. And so we looked at our pre-survey. We wanted to tell the students that for those that had laptops, they could share it with those that did not. So we looked at the pre-survey and we saw that out of our 27 students, 25% had laptops, yet 100% had smartphones. So we basically modified our programming course and made it work all on a smartphone. So we taught programming on the phone. Students wrote code on the phone. They built a pawn game. And they were writing code while in traffic on the way home. And it was such a wonderful experience. Students being able to write code and build games all on their phone. So that worked pretty well. How can someone learn how to write code on an app? Like, how hard is it? I mean, a lot of people are laughing at my question because they write code and they know code. But a lot of people also don't. What's involved in it? How do you learn that? Well, generally, people, programmers write programs on computers, but there are apps that allow you to also write code on a phone, just like you're typing a message to someone. So there are apps that allow you to do that. But I guess in our case, because of the circumstance, we had to leverage using smartphones to be able to address this issue of people not having laptops. 
And it's also interesting, you said that 100% of the students had a smartphone. So smartphone technology has permeated throughout the country. Yeah, exactly. I don't remember the exact stats, but I think there are at least twice the number of mobile devices as compared to humans across Africa. I don't know the exact stat, but like on average, each person has at least two phones. On average, each person has at least two phones. <laughs> Why would that be? I think there's an issue of being able to have multiple SIM cards from different cell phone providers. I think there's that bit of it. Yeah, I think that contributes to that. Well, the price point for these smartphones can't be that high if people have the averages too, because a new iPhone is $1,000. I don't think we're talking about that. No, no, no. So Android devices are much less expensive than iPhones. Yeah. I mean, of course, initially they were very expensive, but these days they are not so expensive. The work with the app and your students, this is continuing as we speak? Yes. This work with teaching people to code on phones was in 2017. Mm -hmm. So after that summer program, we we're like, wow, this is such a cool experience. Let's make it an online course so that we can reach more people. So basically took out that experience out of the in-person program, um, created an online course. And the goal was to teach people across Ghana to code so that we could reach more people. So that's what I did in 2018. I ran an online course for eight weeks to see if we can replicate a similar coding experience, you know, teach people to code. Yeah. And so that worked also pretty well. And we did that again in 2019 and then in 2020. And in total, we've reached over 3K learners across 69 countries, 42 in Africa. So those like were the pilots that we ran. And then in 2020, my co-founder and I decided that, okay, at the rates at which we're going, you know, been growing quite exponentially. And it's quite burdensome running the program the way that we've been doing because there's a lot of manual effort. So if we really want to continue and make the impact that we want to make, that is teach millions across Africa to code, we have to build our own platform so that we can run the program scalably. And to do that, we should also create a startup, a separate entity so that we can raise funds and be able to hire people to work on it full time. So that's what we did. We used some grant funding that we received. We hired some people part time to build the app based on the learnings that we've had in the past several years that happened between 2020 and 2021. And then this year in January, we finally launched the app on the Play Store. And currently we have some users on the platform. So how many people have downloaded the app? Do you know? Currently, we have around 1.5K learners on the app since we launched in January this year. So 1,500. And these are people that are currently on it or is that a cumulative number? People that are currently on the app. Currently on the app. So the total number that have had the beginnings of learning how to code is quite a big number by now. If you go back to your pilots and everything else, you talk about 6K as well. And it's quite a big number already. In total, in the past, in the pilots, we had 3K that applied and around 2K enrolled in the course when we invited them. So in total, around 2K, I guess if we add a thousand people, I guess about 3K now. Besides the app and the program that you created to teach people the code, do you do any other interactions with students, with learners? In terms of how we actually, so the, the course runs as a code-based course. So students all start and end at the same time. And as part of the program, I have like help sessions, so like office hours for students come with problems so that we help solve them. For the 2020 edition, we had a virtual graduation ceremony at the end, which was also yeah. nice. So there's a bit of interactivity in the course. Yeah, that's exciting. It is something to see students succeed. Having been in the education business for a long time, it's very, very fulfilling. Do you collect any data or have any sense of what people are doing with these skills once they do the course? Yeah, so the current course is very introductory, so it doesn't even really give advanced skills yet. But even with the introductory course, many of the people that come to the course haven't learned to code before. So for them, it's like their first introduction to the world of programming. So for some people, they go ahead to learn on their own. Mm -hmm. So for some of our alums have gotten internships in various companies across Africa and also 
jobs. Some of my students have gone on to study computer science and engineering. So one of my former students, she's currently studying computer science at MIT, another Yale, Columbia. So some of these students are going to pick up more skills, go get into, into the field. It's actually a social movement more than it is a course because people are not only learning skills, subset that have the interest, the aptitude, the capability to move on to do much, much more with it are doing it and they're being introduced to it. Given that so many people work from home, work remotely now, I know it's an introductory course, but some are advancing. What's your sense on people in Africa that have taken your course and moved on a little bit more being a talent pool for Silicon Valley or any other part of the world that has a gigantic need for coders? Yeah, I can definitely see that happening. That's one reason why we created the app so that we can create more courses so that people can build advanced skills and be able to get jobs right after, let's say, completing a series of courses. That's definitely where we want to go to. We'll come on the app, they pick up the skills, they can get jobs, work with top companies all over the world, right from wherever they are in whatever part of Africa they live. And actually, the fact that somebody does this course, has the motivation to do this course, is actually a very important data point, independent of the raw skill that they learn on coding because it has to do with aspirations. It has to be with understanding or thinking that the role of technology in the future. So I'm thinking I'm in HR or a recruiter in a big company. I'd want to know who these people are. Have any of these big companies reached out to you or recruiters reached out to you? Try to identify some of the talent pool? Not yet. Hopefully at some point, because we have a lot of useful data, right? People come from, we ask a lot of what fields people are in. We have a lot of good data. We haven't made good use of it yet, but I think at some point it would be really useful data that other companies might want. Actually, I see all sorts of interesting business opportunities from the data. The number one problem around the world, I think it's everywhere, is matching talent to job. And, you know, we're in the middle of this great resignation, as it's called, and there's a shortage of talent. I always say now is the single best time to have talent of any type because you're going to be in such demand and you're going to get paid for it maybe more than you may have before. I know I have a bunch of people in the world of HR that are listeners to the podcast. I wouldn't be surprised if you start to get a couple of emails or calls. I know I would be really interested to know this talent pool, even if they only did the first course. As I said earlier, in and of itself is an interesting early indicator of aspiration and the beginning of some capability. Yeah, definitely. One of the things that we used to ask students to tell us why they are applying for the course. So we actually have like essays from people explaining wow. why they want to take part. So we do have a lot of good data that we actually started looking at to map out why do people even want to learn to code. Well, you could do some content analysis, machine learning that you know well to extract some of the commonalities there. That also would be interesting. In fact, I think this would be interesting as well to write about and publish in Harvard Business Review or some other journals that are maybe even more tech oriented. Something to think about, <laughs> to add to your long list <laughs> of what you're up to now. Yeah, we actually started working on a paper for it, but we had to put it on hold a bit because of other demands. But yeah, the hope is to eventually analyze that and eventually publish it. I mean, what you're doing in a sense is creating a new ecosystem around talent in Africa, coding talent or technology talent, or eventually for some software engineering talent over time. And so it's a huge opportunity, I think, across the board. Pretty interesting. You feel pretty good about what's happened with this so far? Yes, definitely. Sometimes reading the testimonials and the stories are really encouraging, especially in the moments when things are challenging. And you said you got some funding. Have you gone to angel investors or any other types of investors like that for some funding? Not yet. That's what my co-founder and I are trying to do this year. But the previous funding that we received were from various grants. So we won the African Union Innovation Prize. So we won a grant from that. And my school, ETH Zurich, had a grants program, which we applied for. And we got some grants to, to build the app. 
Well, I've had a couple of different people in the venture capital world as previous guests on the SIDCAST. One in particular, actually a former Dartmouth Tuck student, has a fund, and his family is originally from Haiti, and his fund is all about focusing on identifying and investing in business opportunities led by founders that are women or people of color. He made the argument, his name is Jacques-Philippe Piverger, for those listeners who want to look up that episode. And he's made the case that you actually, as a venture capitalist, will do better by investing in founders that are women and people of color because they have not been given as many opportunities as others. And therefore, there's kind of a mismatch of supply and demand. And he has the track record to prove it. So that's kind of interesting. I'll, I'll make sure he knows about this episode. There are plenty of others as well. How about this idea? Now you're making me think about your business point of view. There are global online companies specializing in education, of course. Coursera being maybe the biggest. I just finished not that long ago releasing four of my courses on Coursera. And they have 100 million learners around the world. It might be early days and you might not even be interested in it, but some type of partnership down the line might be interesting because all of a sudden, in theory, 100 million people are going to hear about this. Now, of course, you have to have huge capacity to meet that and you're not quite there yet. But I see a lot of potential. I don't know, because this is a side project for you when you get right down to it. I mean, you're studying for your PhD now, aren't you? Yes, but I guess it's now more than a side project since we incorporated as a company. <laughs> so I guess it's more than that now. Definitely partnerships will be useful. Yeah, it would definitely help with having a bigger reach. It's not super clear what the partnership with you know, established companies like Coursera will look like exactly at this stage. You're just getting my juices flowing thinking about the potential opportunities. How have you been able to manage your time, given all the things that you're doing, including being working towards your own PhD? Yeah, it's tough. It's quite challenging. But I guess for me, how I think about it is doing my PhD and then doing this work. Both of these are really important to me. So I need to find the time to be able to do both. So that means maybe limited social interactions or, you know, spend time on other things just to make the time to be able to work on both. But yeah, it is challenging. But because I know it's important for me to do both, I try to make the time to do both. It's tremendous. I know what's involved in getting a PhD and getting a research record off and running. It's more than full-time work. And a startup is more than full-time work. So somehow you're doing it. It doesn't look like you're sleep deprived as I look at you now. Your eyes are wide open. So that part is good. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about technology and innovation in Africa. The truth is, and you know what, it's true for me as well. So few people in North America and probably much of Europe really know what's going on in Africa when it comes to tech and innovation. So I'm wondering, what could you share? What does it look like? What are you seeing? And maybe kind of let a lot of people know what's going on on the ground there right now. Currently, even though with the COVID pandemic, everyone moving to remote work, it's made it, I guess, much more possible for a lot of young Africans who have the skills in the tech field to be able to find jobs and work with companies all over the world. So that aspect of moving towards the remote work has helped a lot in that sense. There's a lot of young people across Africa. So there's a lot of potential talent pool to train and give them the skills to be able to get jobs and work with tech companies. So there's a lot of untapped potential from that point of view. That also points to that opportunity. There's been a lot of tech companies coming up that are seeking to provide good educational opportunities for students, both in the mainstream educational curriculum and also all these tech skills out of school, extracurricular skills like coding among others. So there's been a lot of that happening across Africa. 
When you look at innovation in any locale, Silicon Valley being an extreme example, but there's a bunch of pockets in the US, a bunch of pockets in Europe, in Canada, South America, and a lot of places. There's an ecosystem that develops. Usually there's a university. There's some educational element where there's people doing research and an opportunity to attract smart kids, smart young people who want to go to school and want to learn. And around that forms investors, people start to build companies that are in that location. And when they're successful, they become angel investors and it starts to build on itself. So I'm wondering whether that exists, as far as you know, in any part of Africa already, and what might be needed to make that kind of build a bit more depth in terms of that entrepreneurial ecosystem. For the past several years, there have been a bunch of labs or hubs in different parts of Africa, like Ghana, Kenya. Kenya is a big one. We used to call it the Silicon Savannah. I don't know if you still call it Silicon Savannah. <laughs> I mean, there are still a bunch of these hubs to kind of diagnose, mirror this whole Silicon Valley ecosystem then. I don't think they view that the outputs that they hope to achieve, at least from my point of view, following it from back in the day when it all started. But nonetheless, it's important to acknowledge that the presence of these hubs have given the opportunity to a bunch of young people to, one, get interested in, mm -hmm. in the tech world and want to get better skills from that point of view. But it hasn't really yielded that much output, at least from my point of view. I'm, I'm trying to think about what could be the possible reasons. Like one of the biggest challenges with entrepreneurial pursuits across Africa is funding. Funding is a big one. For a long time, a lot of young Africans found it difficult to gain capital, right? Because venture capitalists in the U.S. tend to, we're not that open to investing in mm -hmm. young people in Africa because they didn't know the market looks really risky. So that's how it used to be early on. So I think that definitely affected that entrepreneurial movement. But now things are better. It's like every year, there's a whole lot of funding being poured into Africa. I don't remember the exact number, but I think last year was definitely several billions. And there've been a lot of big, prominent young tech companies that have come out of Africa, like Flutterwave, which are making strides that is also helping. Like the example you gave about some of these entrepreneurs, Silicon Valley, making it and then investing into other younger people. So that's also really happening in Nigeria. It's like one big place that's happening. The founders of companies like Flutterwave have a fund now that you know, are currently investing into younger startups. So that's we can see that happening. It's happening a lot more in Nigeria. So there's a bit of that happening. It is interesting to think about what you need in any place to build up the ecosystem as you're describing as well. And the other thing I would add, most startups, the first place they go for funds is friends and family, as it's called, right? Yeah. And that assumes or requires friends and family have some funds in the first place. Exactly. And maybe that's also one of the reasons why most startups are from people with some degree of privilege because they've got that network. And that's tougher in Africa, to be sure. Yes, definitely. That's part on. So that's definitely one big part of it. And there's also the other part of it, which is like, if you're doing a startup, you're taking a big risk, you're probably not going to make money for a long while. And to be able to do that again, you need to have that privilege where you have a safety net. And a lot of people don't have that. Mm -hmm. So there's also that component of it. To really be able to do a startup, the main source of fund is some kind of established fund where you can actually get the money to do it. And those people are, well, I guess, used to be very hesitant to invest in Africa. That is a bit better now. So it also, I guess, affected that aspect of it. But, you know, overall, I'm getting a sense of something much more optimistic, maybe, than many people might think or what that was the case before. Obviously, a long way to go, but there are people like you that are doing what you're doing and then others that have established bigger companies and they put the seeds in place. And that coupled with the reality of the fact that talent wins and it doesn't matter where that talent is, that's finally recognized. That was not recognized even two and a half years ago before COVID. Facebook wanted everyone there in Silicon Valley. 
And of course, they had offices in New York and a few other places in Europe. But this working from home thing was not something big, even in an industry that is known for being pretty casual and relaxed in many ways. But those days are gone. I think that restriction is gone. And as soon as you lift that restriction, it's not much of a stretch to say, well, where can I find super talented people? I mean, one of the reasons why India became a breeding ground for coders and people in finance is that the cost of living is so much lower. You could hire people, often in that case, people with MBAs, in fact, that would get paid a half to a third of what, say, MBA grad in America or Europe would get. But in terms of cost of living, it would be pretty good. And they had all the talent in the world. And so there's that advantage sometimes of being in a part of the world where the costs are not quite as high as they are living in San Francisco or New York City or London, where it's outrageous. So yeah, there is an optimistic story, I think. Let's talk a little bit about you now, George, and how you got into all this. How old were you when you started getting interested in engineering? Because you have an engineering degrees and in technology. Where did this come from? I don't remember the exact age. So I grew up in, in Winneba, a small town along the coast of Ghana. I was always interested in gadgets and how things work. And I think the big break happened for me when my family visited my grandmother in the capital city, Accra. And I saw these encyclopedias in her library and I was really fascinated by them. And so I asked to take them home to Winneba and my grandmother allowed me to do so. And when I took them back home, I was so fascinated by all these science experiments, the books which I tried to do. It was just a whole new world. I guess how I think of it, I could dream beyond my circumstance where I didn't see any engineers. I could dream that I could be an engineer. I could create the next big thing because I had access to these books that I could see people doing it or these experiments which I, which I could do. That's where it really started for me. So throughout primary and junior high school, I tried to get friends together to try to work on some of these science projects. When I got to high school, I think that's where it really solidified. I worked on various science projects. A bunch of friends and I were part of the science club. And there are these um, upperclassmen who mentored us, gave us skills in electronics, mentored us to build these electronic projects. And so that's what we did. We built a bunch of electronic projects, which we exhibited at our science exhibition every year. So at least that was this big thing that we always work in towards. And as part of that, one of the things that I built while in high school, so I went to boarding school in Ghana. And one of the things that happens in boarding school in Ghana, we wash our clothes by hand and then we hang it outside to dry. And people steal your clothes. It's either you try to hang up things outside, you stay by it till it's dry, or you leave it and hope that you're going to come back and see it. <laughs> so I was quite frustrated by that experience. I was like, okay, I'm going to build a portable clothes drying machine so that I can take it to school and use it to dry my clothes. So that's like one of the big goals I worked on when I got to high school. I designed it, began building some of the parts. I got something to work in terms of drying clothes. I burned some clothes along the way, but it was an amazing experience trying to apply electronics and some of the science I was learning, how does evaporation work to build something like this. So that's where it really came to life. So working with friends, to work on all kinds of science projects, a bunch of other things that we built, try to solve problems around us. And that eventually led to kind of what I still do being passionate about solving real world problems, mentoring other young people. So actually the co-founders for the NCSA Foundation were these friends from high school that we run the science club together, mentoring young people. So that passion has been there since a very young age, wanting to see young Ghanaians and Africans live to their fullest potential, problem solvers, build the next big thing. That's fantastic. I love this idea. So you built a dryer, basically. Some clothes may have burnt along the way. Did you get demand from other students for this product for them to use it or was it uh, just something you could do? 
some friends wanted to use it. I mean, it wasn't working fully because it was like really small and I could only dry a few clothes. But it was a solution to a pretty practical problem. What about your family? So you mentioned your grandmother and she had access to these encyclopedias, very, very important. What about your parents or siblings? What did they do? So my parents also have been really, really supportive. I'm the only engineer or science, but I have two sisters, two older sisters, and I'm like the only science or engineering person in my family. But my parents, despite not understanding a lot of the science projects I've been working on, they've always been supportive in terms of, for example, building some of these parts. My dad would give me some money to go build it. I mean, if you think about it in the context of a Ghanaian family, if your child told you they're going to build a clothes drying machine, you're going to be like, it's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) But my parents are like, yeah, he can do it going to support him. When I was designing the device, because I said we used to live in Winneba, but we moved to the capital city. So I had to go to Winneba to work with the artisan to help design some parts. And my mom would go with me because I was quite young to travel between Winneba and Accra to do that. So yeah, my parents have been really supportive always. That's great. So how did you end up hearing about and going to Dartmouth of all places? After high school, I really didn't want to go to university in Ghana because I saw how the educational system was like. It was very theoretical. A lot of these hands-on experiences that I learned were mostly from myself and friends. It wasn't really a part of the curriculum. So I knew the kind of education I would get if I went to university in Ghana. So I really did not want to go to university in Ghana. It was like one of my big things. So even though I applied to the university in Ghana, I already got admission. I decided not to go. So I took a gap year. I wanted to go to the U.S. because we knew about people applying to colleges in the U.S. I didn't know the details of the process, but at least I knew it was an option. So fortunate for me, I was part of this program organized by the U.S. Embassy in Ghana to help students that wanted to study in the U.S. I took part in this program and they helped us with the process. So what it entailed, writing the application essays, the SATs, basically pointing us in the right direction, writing our essays. So it was in that process that I did the research in terms of schools that I wanted to apply to. So I actually ended up applying to 12 schools. Dartmouth was one of them. I actually didn't know much about Dartmouth. I added Dartmouth, I think, a few days before the deadline because back in the day, they did not have supplementary essays. So it was just really simple to add it on the corner. So I actually didn't know much about Dartmouth. So I did the application. Most after I got in and then I began speaking to people. I got into only two schools, Dartmouth and Tufts. I was initially going to go to Tufts because, again, I didn't know much about Dartmouth. Mm-hmm. But I began speaking to people and they're like, oh, you have to go to Dartmouth. That's where you have to go. It's a better choice. <laughs> so I began researching. I found all the opportunities. The deep plan, you could travel abroad. So I learned about all these amazing things about Dartmouth. I think I had friends. Some friends were also at Dartmouth before that I didn't know. So that made a decision and that's how I ended up. You get to Dartmouth, small town in northern New England. Had you ever lived in a cold climate before that? I'd never left Ghana. (laughs) So what was that like the first time the snow fell in October? (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was really, it was always nice the first time you see snow. (laughs) Yeah, it was was nice. You didn't have any trouble adjusting to zero degrees and negative. Oh, I did. (laughs) (laughs) But you do it. You just do it. It's in the scheme of things, it's not that big a deal, even though it's cold. What about, I guess, socially? I wouldn't imagine that there's a very large number of other African students at Dartmouth. It's not that you were the only one. There's probably some boarding schools in the U.S. that have as many students coming from that one school, I'm going to guess. So what was that like socially? How did you figure out how to integrate and make friends and get along, not just in your class, but just living at college? It was quite a, I guess, when it seemed pretty large for me, African community at Dartmouth. There was actually Ghanaians were like the most Africans when I got in here. So that was also nice. So I guess that's one good part of it. 
But more broadly, I think Dartmouth being in the middle of nowhere really contributes to having a really good community, which I tend to refer back to now that I'm not no more Dartmouth. I compared to my Dartmouth experience, realizing that being in Dartmouth, we had a really good close community. So I guess one of my first experiences was going on trips, mm-hmm. which was really good. So I did cabin camping, an amazing experience because that's where it all started from in terms of, you know, that community meeting people from different parts of the world that you didn't know and having these shared experiences together, telling stories of your lives. So I got into that pretty early in terms of that community feel of Dartmouth, also being able to be involved in other kinds of activities and clubs on campus. Being remote creates these bonds, and that's one of the secret sauces of a place like Dartmouth. I'm wondering about another thing. There were probably, and there probably are, more African-American students than African students. One of the things, a bunch of people have done the research on this topic about majority and minority, and I was just talking about this with Marcela Gomez in a recent podcast. So the majority looks at the minority and does not perceive differences. They're all the same. Like Marcela Gomez from Colombia, and she talked about when she moved to the U.S., majority, meaning white people, non-Hispanics, let's say, everyone like that is Hispanic. But in fact, there's Cubans, there's Colombians, there's Mexicans. There's a great deal of variety and they're different cultures. And so my question really is how you perceive that, because the majority will look at people with dark skin and know you're African versus African-American. Maybe they did, but I think usually do not recognize or appreciate really different cultures. One of the challenging aspects of coming to the U.S. was mm-hmm. having to embrace this new identity called Black. <laughs> right. <laughs> because... I've been in Ghana all my life. The concept of race, it wasn't part of my experience. I know in other parts of Africa, like I guess South Africa, it is. But in Ghana, it really isn't. We just, mm-hmm. whatever tribe you are, the concept of racism doesn't really exist. So one of the challenges was all these boxes you have to take, like, what are you, Black, African, African American. So it was one of the shocking aspects that I had to, it was a struggle embracing because I had to reconcile this idea of race. I'm Black, I'm African, I'm not African American, I'm African. So it was a bit challenging in the beginning, reconciling that aspect and having to be lumped together. The only option to take is like African-American. I'm like, I'm not African-American. I'm not American, right? Right. So yeah, it was a bit challenging in the beginning, like at least mentally resolving that. I guess over time, just embraced that this is how it is. The U.S. race is part of the concept in terms of who you are. That's interesting that this was new given where you came from. It wasn't just that everyone had dark skin, but race wasn't part of the fact, but tribes were. Yeah. I think there's got to be some evolutionary reason for it, but we do like to separate people into groups and when they don't exist, we create them. And if they do exist, we highlight them. Not always for good reasons, but it's a very human thing. Maybe someone will tell us why evolutionarily that's an advantage for us to do that. It does create a lot of trouble, as you know. So you went for a PhD. Why did you want to keep going here? (laughs) PhD is a big, complicated, it's just not easy. Why did you decide that you wanted to follow that path? Because I didn't get a job in Silicon Valley. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great answer. (laughs) So actually after Dartmouth, I applied to companies, did a bunch of interviews. I didn't get a job. I consider myself an accidental academic because the main reason why I'm academic is because I didn't get a job. Because if I'd gotten a job, I definitely wouldn't be doing a PhD. I did a thesis, okay, maybe I should back up a bit. So I did research when I was at Dartmouth in different capacities, but the key defining research that I did was for my undergrad thesis. 
Mm-hmm. I worked on a stress monitoring app on this smartwatch called the Amulet, which was developed by my research group at Dartmouth in collaboration with Clemson University. So I really liked that experience of being able to work on something interesting on smartwatches towards health-related stress monitoring. I didn't really like that experience, but I still wanted to go get a job be in Silicon Valley. I did a bunch of interviews. I didn't get a job. And so when that happened, I got the chance to do research. So this is a professor, Dave Coates, do research in the Amulet Research Group. Um, so work as a research assistant, uh, still working on projects on that. So that's what I was going to do as my backup plan to be able to still do research. But then I guess maybe I think it's a good story, so I'm going to tell it. So I was still on campus and one time while working, I just ran into Professor Dami in the Thayer School of Engineering and he asked me, what am I doing? Like, when I've graduated, what's going on? And I told him, like, working as a research, I'm working as a research assistant in the computer science department. And he told me, have I considered doing a master's? And he explained that I could do a master's in Thayer. So basically, he opened my mind to you. You can, rather than just work as a research assistant, you can do a master's instead and still be able to do that research. So I really opened my mind to that possibility. I went back, looked into it a bit more, and I spoke with Professor David Coates about that. We made it work. So basically, I think it was like a few weeks before the start of the fall term. So I applied to there, got admission to do the master's, and I was still able to do the research. I was doing the computer science department. <laughs> yeah, so it's just crazy how it worked because, well, I guess the challenge was in there, it's like two years. I was going to be paid for doing the research work in the computer science department. But I was like, okay, why don't I use that money to, to do a master's in the engineering school? You have to be paid. So I, basically, we came up with this idea where it's like, okay, rather than me being paid to just do research, I'll be paid while getting a master's. Rather do the program in two years, I'll do it in one year. So basically made it all work where I applied to there like a few weeks before and there was really flexible. They admitted me and I started. So that's how it all started. Wow. <laughs> that's fantastic. It's another example of how mentors are so powerful, so important. You wouldn't have known about that possibility. With that master's degree, you automatically become much more marketable, certainly for academia, but for lots of other things as well. Very cool. Your research is in part on artificial intelligence. So this is the challenge now to start explaining something in a way that everyone, including me, will get. What is it that your research is on? So my research group, I'm at ETA Zurich, so more broadly, it's called the Center for Digital Health Interventions. We're interested in developing digital biomarkers for chronic diseases to be able to predict either for diagnosis or how people's diseases are evolving and be able to develop interventions to help improve their well-being. Data that we collect from various devices like smartphones and smartwatches. So more specifically, my research, I am developing a smartwatch-based method to recognize the emotions of uh, romantic couples that are managing a chronic disease. That's what I'm doing. And maybe let me talk a bit about the motivation for the work. So for romantic couples in which one partner has a chronic disease, the burden of the management of the disease is shared by both partners. And it takes a toll not just on the patient, but also on the partner. And so if we could recognize the emotions of each partner in daily life, we can get a good sense of the emotional well-being of each partner, the patient and the supporting partner, and also potentially how well they are managing their chronic disease. And with that, it could inform various interventions to improve their emotional well-being and also the management of the chronic disease. In this work, we are collaborating with health psychologists at the University of Zurich to collect this data from Swiss couples based on the interactions in daily life. So how does the data get collected? Is it through some type of sensors or is it through interviews or observation or what? 
sensors. We developed an app called the Diamond app that runs on the smartwatch and also on smartphones. And we basically collect sensor data such as speech based on their conversations, heart rate, gestures, astronauts gyroscope for gestures and ambient light. And also we also collect, we also ask them self-reports about their emotions and also other health information. And I'm using this data to predict their emotions yeah, based on their interactions. Based on these interactions. So on a smartwatch, you actually can sense speech, for example? Yes, the word that we're using collects speech data. How would you do that? Just by recording what people are saying? That, but we do it in a more creative way. Um, so basically, in general, how researchers collect data from couples, they either do recording randomly or they do it at a scheduled time. So let's say every 10 minutes, every five minutes, every hour. We came up with a novel approach where, because we wanna, our goal is to collect data based on their interactions. And so the naval approach that we came up with was first, we detect if the partners are physically close within a certain distance using the Bluetooth strength of the smartwatches that we give each partner to wear. And then if we say, okay, they are close within a certain distance, then we run a voice activity detection algorithm, which detects whether or not there's speech. So when these two conditions are met, then we infer that, okay, the partners are having a conversation. And so when that happens, we record for five minutes and then we trigger a self-report for them to tell us how they're feeling and that things about emotional support and other data that is useful for us. It's not hard to imagine how there is a potential business opportunity out of something like this also down the line. Is that something you and your team have been thinking of or you're strictly in the research realm right now? For this work is mostly the research part. I haven't really thought much about the business aspect of it. I know there are startups that are using particularly the Apple Watch to try to identify all kinds of data points, including maybe it's from heart rate and maybe, I don't know if they can detect sweating or anything like this, but I'm not sure what metrics they're identifying. But there are attempts to do that to try to understand the mental health of someone, which is really kind of revolutionary. Otherwise, how would someone who might want to intervene or help or know anything about them? I was reading somewhere that you had some personal experience with health, uh, maybe some type of arthritis or something like this that got you interested in wearable technology or machine learning. Is that true? Part of it. Yes, I have rheumatoid arthritis. After my PhD, I'm going to do a postdoc and I was deciding what project to work on. And my supervisor encouraged me to work on something different from what I did for my PhD, but obviously also within the health field. So I decided to work on something related to rheumatoid arthritis because I do have that. And so using wearable devices to be able to improve the management of muscle arthritis. Tremendous. So your postdoc is going to be another two or three years, perhaps. You're talking to us now in Cambridge. Is that where you're going to be for that or somewhere else? No. So I'm going to still be in my research group at ETH. So that's a plan. Let me ask you more about culture for a second. So you're in Zurich now, and that's very different than Ghana and it's very different than Hanover. Any stories or insights on what it's like to live there? Maybe it was easy to adapt and adjust to that after being in the U.S., even though Hanover is so small. But yeah, I'm curious because that's another continent, a big city and very, very different type of environment. So it's definitely a change from the U.S. When I think about Zurich, I guess Switzerland more broadly, I think of it as a quiet place <laughs> as compared to the U.S. Even though the U.S. I was in Hanover, New Hampshire, but I guess in terms of more broadly in the U.S., I, I think of Switzerland as a quiet, calm mm -hmm. compared to the U.S. more broadly. 
I guess the other aspects of Switzerland that I do like is how things are prompt and on time. For example, the transportation is an example that I always go to. The fact that I can get off the tram or the bus and I know exactly when it's going to arrive and when I'm get off is just amazing. But also, I mean, the other aspects of living in Switzerland, which I shared a few months ago in terms of racial profiling, which happens in Switzerland. I hadn't thought much about it. I and mean, I've lived in Switzerland for almost four years now. You first move to a different place and something happens and you dismiss it. And then it happens several more times and you realize that, oh, wait, this is actually a thing that happens. I mean, racial profiling happens in the U.S. The difference is in the U.S., we all understand that it's wrong. But in Switzerland, it feels like it's the norm, especially coming from the police, which is just weird. Because if the people that are enforcing the law don't see anything wrong with it, then how can it change? This is just the other aspect that recently dawned on me in terms of the experience of being Black in Switzerland that got me thinking a lot. There are probably fewer Black people in Switzerland than in the U.S. also because of such a big African-American population in the U.S. And so people there don't, or at least the police don't think it's anything different, anything wrong, rather. Some things are not publicized unless you're there. Like what you just said, that's news to me and probably news to a lot of people. Switzerland has, talk about good public relations. Switzerland has great, beautiful outdoors and skiing and the mountains and the efficiency that you described. It's very wealthy, but it's also very, very uniform in its culture and people, I guess. Let me ask you one final question because we've covered a lot of ground. It's been really interesting. The question I want to ask you is about advice. It's actually interesting in particular for you because you've mentored younger people along the way. But my question about advice is advice to yourself. You're still quite young, but if you could go back to when you were, say, 20 years old, which is, again, not long ago, but when you were 20 years old or 18 years old, if you will, if you could give yourself some bit of advice at that time, if you could magically go back in time to talk to yourself and say, boy, there's one bit of advice that would be good for you to know about. What would that bit of advice be to yourself at the age of 18 or 20? So there's this advice that one mentor, he actually always gave me this advice back then, which I'll still probably go back and give myself the same advice, which is that everything is going to be fine. Because I mean, if I look at my journey, it's definitely not what I planned. Like I mentioned, I really wanted to go work in Silicon Valley. This is not a journey that I planned. A lot of things seem to have been accidental in terms of the path that I've taken. And along the line, a lot of moments when you're anxious, things don't work the way you are, you're stressed, scared, and it feels like things are not going to work out. Just looking back and seeing how things have evolved, if I can go back, I'll just tell myself, just be calm and trust the process. Everything's going to be fine. Yeah, that calm down. <laughs> There's no big advantage to creating stress on yourself. That's for sure. That's pretty good advice. And who knows the journeys, the people I talk to from so many walks of life on the podcast, they do all sorts of things, but very, very, very few of them have followed one straight line in terms of their career. Hardly anyone. It's almost always, as one of my guests said, zigzag. You zig and you zag. The yin and the yang, you move around, you do different things. If we were to talk, you know, in 20 years, you might be able to come out with a great story about how you went from this to this to that. But today, it's impossible to know what that's going to be. And that actually turns out to be the norm, much more common than the exception, which a lot of younger people don't actually realize. They think, oh, everyone's got it figured out. But the truth is, very, 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 very few people ever have it figured out. You just do the best you can and you try to go for it. Yeah, exactly. Even just uh, that's also one thing that I'm quite careful because, for example, if you want to learn about someone, you go read their Wikipedia page or, you know, some kind of biography and it looks so perfect. Like, oh, this person did this and that and it doesn't contain all the uncertainties and all that happening along the way. <laughs> that would actually be an interesting thing for everyone to have. It won't happen because it requires people to be vulnerable in public. <laughs> but the bio that's 
polished and beautiful. And then the real bio, which is you still did all that stuff, but the zigs, the zags, the challenges, the backward steps and everything else, which is what the messiness of life actually is. George, Jojo Boteng, thank you so much for being on the SIDCast. What a nice conversation. Learned a lot about you, a little bit about AI and some of the work you're doing, but especially about your project and technology and innovation in Africa and your own journey. Thank you so much. Thank you too for having me. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. The SIDCast is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative, well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please consider giving us a five-star review, and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sitcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.